Thank you. Good morning. Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for the new life you give us. May we be so captivated by it today that we want to embrace it fully. In Jesus' name. Amen. The heavy metal door clangs shut loudly. Inside and alone, you stare around the four white walls and the tiny barred window above. In court, the evidence was so great that you had to plead guilty, and the judge handed down your hefty but fair sentence, life imprisonment. But in the morning, you're woken by a knock on the cell door. For some reason, inexplicable to you, you've been granted a state pardon, and you're free. Incredible. You feel like you can breathe again. You're free to go back to your family, your friends, free to enjoy life once again. But just as you step out of the prison gate to embrace your new life of freedom, something unfathomable occurs in your mind. You decide you would rather go back to prison. You want to hand back all your civvy possessions and return to your cell. But the state that issued the pardon says you can't return because there's no longer a case against you. But you insist. Although the state pardon still stands declaring you not guilty, you want to go back to prison life. You're choosing imprisonment over freedom. Well, I think we can all agree that would be madness. And yet it's exactly what so many Christians do every day of their lives. We've been freed from the punishment of sin, freed to embrace a new life of freedom following God. But we go back to the old dead way of living in the prison. I think we've all done it. And in principle, this is the issue the Apostle Paul is addressing here in this section of his letter to the Romans, which we're looking at today. We're continuing on in our series in Romans, Live a New Life. And today, in chapter 6, we're looking at embracing this new life. So first point is just that, embrace a new life. Last week you heard from Edwards on Romans 5 about how death came through Adam, but new life comes through Christ. But as much as we can receive this new life, we need to embrace the new life by living it. Now, writing to the Roman church in the first century, the Apostle Paul was anticipating that some Christians might say that because God's grace had forgiven them fully, it didn't matter if they went back to sinning again. Even though God had given them a wonderful new life, some didn't want to fully embrace it. They wanted to live their old life. We see that in verse 1, where Paul asks, in light of all he's explained in chapters 1 to 5 about God's amazing gift, shall we then go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, he answers. And he's obviously posing it as a ludicrous question. 
But it's a question that so many ask. It's the age-old question of, if I'm forgiven of everything, can I not just continue in my old life of sin? Even though I've been granted freedom, can I not just carry on with prison life? And to answer this question, what Paul does is explain exactly what it means to be a Christian in terms of our unity to Christ. He explains that believers are so united to Jesus in a new life that it's inconceivable for them to go back to living their old life. Paul explains that all that happened to Jesus also happened to you if you're a Christian this morning. And for that reason, verse 5, we've been united with Jesus in his death. In his book on Romans, Stuart Olliott unpacks this really well. He explains that our unity to Jesus is so great that he did not just die for you, you also died with him. You were on the cross. You died. Even more than in a marriage where two come together as one, the unity Christians have with Jesus is even more profound That's actually what baptism is all about, if you've ever wondered. Going down into the water, representing the death we share with Jesus, and then rising up out of the water to a new life. It's symbolic of a spiritual reality. Just as Jesus rose for us, so the rising out of the water represents that. But true believers share in Jesus' death. And it's a death that brings new life. And grasping this new life is essential to embracing it. If we don't understand what the new life is, we'll be tempted to slink back to the old. But by understanding exactly what it is that we've been given, we will long for it. We'll embrace it. You see, in a world led so much by feelings... The secret to embracing the new life God gives you is actually in the mind. It's in the knowing. And that's exactly why Paul goes to such lengths to explain the unity that all believers have with the Lord Jesus. And as you understand it all in your mind, your hearts and your life will then follow. And to help us in that understanding... Paul uses an extended illustration of slaves and masters in verses 15 to 20. So next point, we embrace a new master. And what Paul explains is that all human beings have a master to whom they are enslaved. There's no neutral position. We're either enslaved to sin, to our desires, or we're enslaved to righteousness. And he picks this up in verse 16, where he speaks about slavery to sin or righteousness. It's language which the Roman church would have understood. Because back then, if you were in financial need, you could actually offer yourself voluntarily as a slave to a master. In many ways, it was the social welfare system of ancient Rome. So using this known language, Paul explains from verse 17 on that for Christians, although you used to be 
slaves to sin. As he says, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching in the mind that now claims your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So essentially, Christians have a new master. Now, it's always good to use illustrations to help us understand things, but I read one in this book by Stuart Olliot, as I mentioned earlier on Romans, that I couldn't better it, and I'm going to read it out to you now. There was once a poor slave who was kept as a prisoner in the castle of his tyrannical master. The slave had to do all that his cruel master commanded and became more and more miserable because the tyrant exploited him and made his life one of unceasing labour and toil. There seemed to be no way of getting out of this bondage and suffering. But it so happened that nearby there lived a great king who, out of love for the poor prisoner, planned a marvellous way to release him. We need not go into details except to say that the king killed the imprisoned slave. The tyrant came looking for his slave but found him dead. This meant, to his annoyance, that he could no more make demands of him. None of the rights which he had previously exercised over the slave could operate anymore. The master-slave relationship that had existed for so long was now at a permanent end. When the slave's body was buried, the great king came along and raised him to new life. He took him into his own home, and the slave was overcome with thankfulness for the fact that he had been delivered from his condition in such a remarkable way, and was overjoyed that he now found himself in the home of one so gracious and powerful. His heart was filled with sincere love and affection for his deliverer, and he determined that he would now serve him. The old relationship with his tyrant master had been ended by his death. Yet, he was alive. He recognised that having been given such newness of life, there was only one who he could now serve. He was dead to his old master, and alive to his new one. Dead to sin, but alive to God. If you're a Christian, you need to understand your relationship to sin. The old master who once ruled you. You have undergone a death. Because you've died this death, sin is no longer able to be the controlling factor in your life. Being dead, you're now free from sin. It once dominated you. It was your master, your ruler. And like a tyrant, it kept you in bondage and misery. But that relationship is now completely ended because you've undergone a death. Instead, you now have a wonderful relationship with your new master, who is God. After your death to sin, a resurrection took place to new life. You are now dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? As Christians, we have a new master, which means, thirdly, that we embrace a new direction. And Paul outlines what this looks like if you see on your sheets in verses 11 to 14. He explains that Christians should understand that through their unity to Christ, they're dead to sin but alive to God. So they shouldn't live as if sin is their master anymore, but live in a new direction 
and offer themselves as instruments, this language Paul picks up. But not as instruments of wickedness and sin, but rather instruments of righteousness. Consider someone who owned a van and once used it, borrowing language from Line of Duty, which I've only just finished watching. Always been a bit behind with that sort of thing. Once used it for the evil purposes of an OCG, an organized crime group. But now, having embraced new life in Christ, offer their van in service to God as an instrument of righteousness. And at the church I grew up in, there was such a man called Phil Dade. And he had a van and used it all the time to serve the church in different ways, shifting stuff around, offering it to the church for events. Who knows? Maybe even loading up occasionally an extremely heavy cage football game. He used his van as an instrument of righteousness. He called it God's van. Whether his driving supported that claim was an ongoing debate. But the principle was there. But Paul extends that deeper here. He's saying that this is how we ought to consider our very selves. Not just things we own, but who and what we are. We become the instrument. It's not just what we do with our time or money, but what we do with our very bodies, both in public and in private. He's saying, look, don't offer yourselves as an instrument of sin anymore. Use yourself, all that you have and all that you are now, as an instrument of righteousness. Don't offer yourself to sin, offer yourself to God. As Paul says in verse 14, sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law. You're under grace. So we no longer live enslaved to the old master of sin, but now live in the freedom of the grace of God. It's a freedom which is a paradox because as John Stott has written, it's a slavery to righteousness, which is a freedom. And such freedom is slavery. Now, understandably, we often think of slavery as a negative thing. But in this context, Paul is arguing that given we are all slaves to one master, the vital thing is that we're slaves to the right one. So living this new life in this new direction involves following our new loving master. Often people think that freedom is about being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want. But actually, that only leads to societal breakdown and ultimately anarchy. As sinful human beings just indulge their varying desires to increasing degrees. No, true freedom is actually living in the way we've been designed by the maker, according to God's loving commands. And so we need to follow God in his new direction for our lives so that we can offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness. Well, what does that look like, you might wonder? Stuart Elliott again. How in practice does a Christian live a life free from the dominion of sin and under the dominion of God? Let us continue with our illustration. The slave who died and rose again is now spending his days serving his new master, the king, who saved him 
from his old tyrant master. One day, while doing an errand, he bumps into his old master. The old master tries to instill terror in him and gives him commands just like he used to. He even threatens to beat him if he disobeys. What is the slave to do? Well, first of all, he must call something to mind and must remember that it's true. He must remember that the old master no longer has any authority to command him, no rights over him, and no power to make him do what he says. Sin is no longer his master, despite the claims that it makes. He has one and only one legitimate master, his new king. So to each command the tyrant makes, he must say, no, you have no claim over me. You have commanded me to do things which I am no longer bound to do. You have no hold over me. I have nothing to do with you. I refuse. But refusing to serve the old master, although a good thing, is not enough. He should be busy also serving the new one. Idling in the Christian life is dangerous. What we need to do is be caught up and give our energies over and employ them in serving God, our new master. Maybe you've gotten away already this summer or you've got plans to. During my recent holiday to Cornwall, there was an area on the beach where you were allowed to swim between two flags. It was actually a bit wider than that, but um, I thought it was a apt picture. And outside of that area, it was unsafe to swim because of the dangerous riptides. And whenever someone veered outside of the flags, and inevitably there always were some, the lifeguard would shout on his megaphone to return to the safe swimming area. And only a fool would ignore that, because even dabbling with riptides can be fatal. And it's like that with the new life we've been given. Although we're to say no to our old master of sin, we also, in our own individual lives, and only you will know how and where this matters, need to make every effort to stay within the flags of God's commands, to avoid sin, so that we don't offer ourselves as an instrument for it, but rather offer ourselves to God. You see, God's grace doesn't just forgive our sins, it also delivers us from sinning. And with our new master, we can live in God's new direction, with his power within us. Now, of course, if you're wondering today who your master is, you simply need to think about who you serve. Now, we might say, yes, I follow Christ with our words, but do we follow him with our lives? It's not about living perfectly, but in a direction. Is there a direction? Because true faith will ultimately show itself not in words, but in life. You see, for Paul, profession is not enough. Christians must live in a new direction. So we have a new life with a new master and a new direction. And finally and briefly, we must therefore also embrace a new destination. And Paul helps us understand this in his closing verses. In verse 22, he writes that we've been set free from sin to become slaves of God. God is now our wonderful new master. 
And as our new master, he pays a very different wage. Look down at the wage that the master of sin pays in verse 23. The wages of sin is death. Now that seems harsh, but actually it's a wage we all deserve. Death not just in this life, but eternal death in hell. But God gives those who follow him an undeserved wage, a gift, a destination, eternal life, because of what Christ has done. The new destination is the coming eternal new creation. You see, the false freedom that sin appears to offer is only a license to immorality and a life of enslavement to it. But the true freedom that God offers is a liberty to live righteously for him in a new direction because of a new destination. Now, those who stay in the life of sin might say, it's great, I'm enjoying it, all my friends are doing it. But you know what? Even though it appears attractive for a season, it always leaves you empty. And not only that, but that master will ultimately pay you a horrendous wage of sin and death. But those who follow God as their new master will receive the gift of eternal life. So let's be those who submit to God as a wonderful new master and offer our lives in righteousness by following him. Let us embrace a new life, embrace a new master, embrace a new direction, and embrace a new destination. Amen.